0: Hello, I'm James Took, and this is a show in which I'll be exploring the full breadth of the medical spectrum, yielding insight from experts in their fields. I'll be speaking to practitioners and researchers about their experiences and newest findings, as well as patients about their time in care and the challenges that they faced. I'll also be discussing culturally relevant ethical issues, as well as providing feel good stories to help you get through your week. Welcome to The Good Medical Podcast. The coronavirus pandemic has had a devastating impact worldwide, and especially within the UK. As of July the 15th, when this interview was recorded, the death toll from COVID-19 stood at 45,053. As we enter the fourth month of lockdown within the UK, measures are beginning to ease, but the threat of COVID still feels very real. From early on in the outbreak, a discrepancy became very clear in the impact that the disease was having on BAME populations and communities. Of NHS worker deaths, 95% were from minority ethnic backgrounds. Although socioeconomic factors and the presence of comorbidities in these communities were clear contributors, they were not enough to explain the difference alone. As a result, there are currently several ongoing studies that will hopefully yield further information on the factor that is affecting these populations. Today I will be speaking to Professor Iqbal Singh OBE, a specialist in older adult care who is also the chair of the BAME forum within the GMC. He has been an active speaker on the unequal impact of several diseases within the UK on the BAME community as well as the need for more targeted healthcare communication with these communities so that mortalities and morbidities can be reduced. Today we'll be discussing an article he wrote proposing a risk assessment measure as well as future improvements in the way that we communicate about disease and lifestyle changes so that we can reduce this discrepancy in the COVID impact. I will also be speaking to him about his specialty in older adult care and the advances that he has brought about through establishing CSOP, the Centre of Excellence for the Safety of Older Patients. He has been using this platform to educate and instill confidence in healthcare professionals when working with older adults to establish treating plans, as well as ensuring comfort and safety for those patients. Hello, Hippal. Hi. How are you? I'm fine, thanks, Jane. Good. So we're going to be speaking today about mainly the disproportionate impact of COVID-19. And then we're going to be talking about your specialty of caring for older adults, something you've been involved in for the best part of the past 30 years. And you've set up CSOP, the Centre of Excellence for the Safety of Older People. Let's firstly start with COVID-19 and a statistic that keeps coming back is this disproportionate impact of the disease on BAME populations, as well as different genders and older adults. Would you be able to tell us about that discrepancy and how it's come about?
1: Yeah, thanks very much. Yeah, it's really, really important because COVID-19 generally has had a huge, devastating impact with over 45,000 deaths in UK and devastating impact nationally and internationally. But in some communities, it has had a much more serious impact and BAME communities have been involved much more in terms of both the susceptibility to the virus and the complications that have arisen. So it's definitely a very important point that we understand why we are getting this disproportionate impact. But even more importantly, we then have a plan as to what needs to be done and what can be done. Yes,
0: and we'll come to that plan in a second. Something that's important that you mentioned there is the increase in susceptibility and actual severity of symptoms. So there's a a disproportion, not only in mortalities, but also in the infection rate and how fast it's spreading through these communities. So moving on to that, would you be able to describe some of the reasons why the disease is disproportionately affecting BAME groups as well as older
1: groups, different genders? I think what we are finding out, the huge number of studies and in UK, the ONS data, the HSJ surveys telling us that BAME communities and BAME key workers, BME healthcare workforce, doctors, nurses, physios, they are all getting affected at a much greater rate. But it's also telling us that the number of deaths in BAME communities is much more. In the doctors, as you know, about 95% of, unfortunately, the medical deaths have been in BAME communities whereas in the general population, there are certain groups who seem to show a preponderance of mortality. That is the black population, then the Asian population, the Bangladeshi population, the Indian population, all of them showing higher levels of mortality. We know that there are certain factors which are linked to this disproportionate impact but we definitely don't have very clear evidence in terms of why this is happening apart from many of the known factors. We know for instance that the risk of comorbidities in BAME populations is higher, the risk of diabetes, the risk of hypertension, the risk of obesity, And all these factors make it more likely the risk of sickle cell disease or traits. And then we know of the socioeconomic factors. We know of the link between BME communities and deprivation and levels of employment. And then it's the issue around the housing and the impact of that. The greater number, that's based on the census, BME, living in multi-generational households, and therefore putting them at greater risk. But what we also know is that if we take out all the socioeconomic factors, we take out all the medical comorbidities, and we also take out the risks of age and gender, we are finding that people over the age of 70 are much more likely to get and much more likely to unfortunately die and in gender terms you know the risk in the male compared to the female and if we take all these risks out there is still a gap that cannot be explained by all the factors we know so we have some idea what the other factors may be but we don't have evidence and that is why that's what we need the research on.
0: Yes and I think that's quite interesting is there is still this not quite known element to this discrepancy between the effect on BAME populations and other groups. It is interesting that you mentioned there the effect of socioeconomic factors and overcrowding causing greater spread rates, infection rates within certain communities. So let's move on to tackling this problem or things that need to be put in place to help reduce this risk. You have presented a risk assessment or help to present a risk assessment form that needs to be adapted for assessing COVID patients or patients who are at risk of it. Would you like to talk about that?
1: So till we understand the reasons for this high levels of risk, until we understand the reasons for the higher mortality amongst BAME communities, we have to do what is possible we obviously need research to understand and if we found out that there was a certain particular factor that was making the BAME more susceptible then we would address that but here the issue is that till we find that we need to see what we can do and if we do a risk assessment and we therefore Protect people from the virus infection or the virus morbidity and mortality, then we would have done something. So, what we have suggested is that there is a risk assessment that puts people in categories. It puts them in low risk category, moderate risk, or high risk category. And those that are high risk have adjustments. We are talking of doctors and nurses, that those who are high risk, then we protect them from direct exposure, say to patients who may be coronavirus patients, or we make sure that the PPE they have is on the level that it protects them. So it is specific action to risk assess patient, because we know the factors that if people get them, the mortality is higher. So we know that age, we know the gender, we know the comorbidities. So what we do is that those people who are more likely to die if they get the virus, we do a risk assessment and protect them. So this risk assessment is a score based on age, ethnicity, gender, and the multiple clinical comorbidities. And if you score higher in this, then you would be In the high-risk group, which would mean that you need some work adjustments. If you score moderate, then you would need work adjustments within the moderate group. And if you are low-risk, then you don't need any work adjustments. A bit like the over-70s, we knew that these over-70 population has a huge chance of mortality if they get. So we shielded them. So it was very similar that if you had, say, a 68-year-old who had all the comorbidities. So we actually may therefore end up developing a risk score or a COVID risk age score.
0: Something quite interesting about what you mentioned there is obviously we had this shielding scheme for the the over-70s group, the population that were going to be affected, and this did extend to certain comorbidities that you have mentioned already, diabetes, hypertension cancer patients. But I don't believe, and I'll check with you on this, does it extend to including BAME populations or being part of a BAME community as a risk factor, the current shielding procedure?
1: No. The shielding procedure, which started in March, was age-dependent and some comorbidities which were disease-dependent. It did not have either gender or ethnicity no but the risk assessment tool that's being used now has both gender and ethnicity
0: and that's a really important adaptation as we've learned more about the disease and its effect on these communities that we adapt the measures that we're taking so short term this risk assessment tool is what you think is key for helping working populations from any of these at-risk groups or people out in the community moving into the future following on from this and who knows how long we'll be living in a world where we have coronavirus measures there are some other key issues you highlighted in access to health information or the way in which we communicate health information to BAME communities and this might be to do with clashing with cultural or religious values as well as the way in which they behave risk-wise so would you be able to elaborate on that and what we could do better
1: I think we have known for some time about the high levels of disease like diabetes and heart disease in the British Asian community and the risks from that. But we haven't been able to influence lifestyles with diet, with nutrition, with exercise, Uh, by the way we have given the messages or the messaging in relation to public health has not been effective. So it's very important that we, as a part of this COVID strategy for COVID and the rest of inequality strategy, we are able to come up with a very effective public health messaging system that is able to influence the BAME communities, that they recognize it as something that is for their benefit developed in partnership with BAME communities and delivered in partnership. With BME communities. But just in addition to the messaging in terms of what we need, so we need research into the susceptibility of BME communities to the virus, and we need research to the reasons for increased mortality. And as we are all aware, there are a number of research projects that have been commissioned by NIHR. And therefore, it's a 12-month time span period to report. So hopefully within 12 months, we will have that. We don't know how much of the coronavirus we will still have as
0: well. And the importance of this research, though, it goes beyond COVID-19 and however long it may last and however long we might be caught up in it this information on messaging and communication and how we can better educate or inform these communities is really translational into reducing comorbidities or any other disease that disproportionately affects those communities. Exactly. And a large focus at the moment has been, apart from this disproportionate impact, we've all been waiting on vaccine studies. I think in America, one of the vaccine trials today Reach the final trial stage. And that's been a lot of the focus, but has there been anything else that needs looking at within the world of medicine regarding the COVID circumstances? Anything that you think has been maybe not as focused on?
1: So I think there are four key areas that we need. We need to look at susceptibility of people. We need to look at the virulence. Is it differently virulent? Then we need to look at communication and messaging. And the fourth key area which we need to realize is that even when the virus goes away, the impact of it may keep on happening over a long period of time, especially not just in physical terms with people feeling fatigue, but the short term and mental health complications of the virus. So we need to be very much aware of that and we need to be able to address that. So that we don't have a situation where we have the mental health impact is worse than the impact of the immediate effects of coronavirus. So we need a strategy for that, and we need to make sure that we have arrangements for that.
0: Yes, but it'd be very interesting to see an analysis of lockdown measures, which are obviously very necessary and important in preventing the spread of the virus, but side effect of that is the effect it has on mental health of the reduced socializing and environments that people might be kept in. So it'd be really interesting to see going forward some respect and focus on the mental health effects of the COVID-19 scenario.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: Let's move on to what is your specialty and your main has been your main line of work for quite some time, which has been Care for the older population this is something I find particularly interesting because the population of the UK, as well as the whole world, has over the past century begun to live a lot longer and life expectancies have gone pretty much through the roof. So, even in the time you've been working, what changes have you seen in the aging population and what challenges does this bring about? So, I think the
1: biggest change, as you say, is the demographic change that we are all living longer. For instance, in UK, a 70-year-old has a further life expectancy of between 12 to 14 years. So that's quite a significant amount of number of years. The challenge over the years and the challenge of this demographic population is how to make sure that people live longer but they live healthier as well. And they live as independent as possible with whatever support is needed. And the other biggest challenge in care of older people at the moment, or as we say, the most problematic expression of human aging is frailty. So how do we make sure that we address and we decrease the frailty in every older person's Mm -hmm. lifetime and how we make sure that there are two areas we take. There's the young age and then we say the age which is disability free, and then the age which is with disability. And the challenge for us is to make sure that the age that is disability free becomes longer and longer, and the age of disability becomes shorter and shorter.
0: Indeed, and I think this highlights a difference in the way older adult care is looked at compared to maybe the rest of the world of medicine. In that, most doctors, when you're treating a patient, you'll be looking to extend their life expectancy, ensure that they are going to survive a long time against whatever illness because they are normally quite young and otherwise healthy. But when looking at the older population, It's more of a balancing act and ensuring that they get to live, obviously, as long as possible, but that those years that they live are good quality life years. And I guess that's something that's transitioned quite a lot in the way we've looked at older adult care. Have you found there's been more of a shift?
1: Yeah, I I think that is very, very true. That that is the focus of us, that people live longer, but they live, So we have living well and they also age well. So of course everybody has to age, but it is making sure that people live well and age well. And so many changes have happened over the period of last three decades in the way we look after old people. And these changes have benefited that older people are living much longer now and they are living healthier we don't have a ceiling on the use of certain drugs or certain procedures or we don't have a limit of how many older people can have a certain treatment we just look at every older person as an individual to see whether that particular intervention procedure medication is relevant to them or will be of help to them we don't disregard because they are of a certain age that we are not going to do this mm-hmm. so the access to treatment for older people is there yes. and age is not a limiting factor multiple comorbidities may maybe but not age and it's also our attitude to the aging population that we are moving towards an attitude of a society where we respect the older
0: people yes and interestingly you were saying there about having a ceiling or the absence of a ceiling which is really important when treating and providing treatment for an aging population and even in terms of comorbidities I guess one of the key aims is to reduce comorbidities as much as possible and also just to ensure as you said reduction of frailty preventing patients from being frail and unable to access those treatments I think there's been several steps towards that Deprescribing has been something that's been taught more and more in a way of treating the aging population better, ensuring that they're on less medications if medications aren't really necessary. So you personally have founded this endeavor, the Center of Excellence and Safety for Older People, CSOP. And this is aiming to bring along even further these goals that you've had in increasing the knowledge and the confidence in caring for older adults. Would you be able to talk about what CSOP does, the work that you do?
1: So we have long recognised that one of the challenges in delivering healthcare is to make healthcare safe. And we have taken a number of initiatives over the last two decades. But patient safety is still a major issue that uh, impacts on care of general populations and specifically We've talked about older population. So there was a commission set up which looked at how we could improve the safety through education and training of healthcare and social care workforce. And recommendations of that in relation to older people led to this forming of this center of excellence for older people, which we call a CISO. And this one, as you said, was supported by a number of hospitals in the Northwest Uh, health professionals from across the Northwest, working together with a clear focus on two areas. One was how we improve the skills and knowledge of our healthcare workforce and social care workforce, Uh, how we make them more aware of the common diseases and give them the confidence to be able to manage these people. And the other was, and this was so much following the Francis in mid-staffs and some other uh, in care homes, that how do we embed dignity, compassion, and respect within our workforce. And what's so important is we hosted the first international conference on safety for older people. And it was a full day one, but we had one session on dignity, compassion, and respect. And the feedback from the conference was that that was something people valued the most because they thought that was really important. So this is a project to try and help out. But the other thing we have been doing in the COVID is recognizing what we were talking about, issues around frailty and how we prevent it, is how working with GPs, we make sure that while older people were being shielded, they were doing good exercise, attending to their nutritional needs, looking at their medications and GPs reviewing them and looking at their mental health and well-being with the areas where there was the biggest danger of impact.
0: And you've spoken about how you delivered these seminars and these courses on treating older adults with respect, dignity, compassion as a medical practitioner. With the COVID pandemic, this has all moved virtually. Are these webinars accessible to anyone?
1: yes these are these webinars I mean there's obviously a number but I think we are having up to a thousand they are for doctors they are for health professionals they are for managers they are for nurses and we've called them supporting the medical workforce healthcare workforce building resilience which is so much important in this time and they are on two key areas. One is the wider NHS and the impact, and the other ones are making sure that what we would normally do, and that is uh, clinical areas and clinical topics. And we've been very pleased at the feedback we've had from them.
0: I'm sure I've seen one myself, and I really found it interesting and educational. And I'll be leaving. I'll be leaving a link because I think it's really great for people to see, it, even as students or practitioners. It's always really helpful to observe the way in which you should communicate with older people. I think it's from pediatrics to general patients to older adults. I think there's a very different way in which you communicate, and understanding the way in which you need to work with older patients to get the best out of their their treatment and ensure that they are comfortable and uh, happy with the treatment is very really important. So I guess to finish moving forward into the future now, hopefully coming out of the COVID pandemic, are these ambitions, these two goals that you said, are they starting to become realised? Is there a next step on the horizon? Or what is your next step in ensuring that you continue to advance older adult care?
1: Yeah, no, I I think that there are issues around contributions to national policy, which we are involved moving forward in terms of living and ageing well. And see what else needs to be done, building it within the curriculum, the issues around safety, around care of older people, and promoting dignity, compassion, and respect. And we are moving forward, and we're quite hopeful that with all the opportunities we have, we will have a much more professional healthcare workforce.
0: I'm sure that's to everyone's benefit. Thank you so much for speaking to me today. It's been really great to hear about a topic so relevant right now in terms of the disproportion of specifically COVID-19, but I think, as we said, this extends to many other diseases, this discrepancy in certain communities, and how we work as a society and as healthcare professionals to target those groups and speak to those groups better and reduce that risk. And also, speak about older adult care, it's been really interesting to hear your thoughts, how you've seen it change, and I wish you all the best for the future. I'm sure CSOP is a a fantastic centre and it seems like there's many more advances to come. So thank you very much.
1: Yeah, and thank you, James. That's really good. And keep up the great, good work that you're doing. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much. Goodbye. After listening to Iqbal, it becomes apparent that there are some shortcomings, Not only in the way that we are assessing and communicating with BAME communities during the pandemic, but even in the way we provide healthcare information day to day and into the future. It is only through the actions he is taking, as well as those of many others, that we are starting to see advancement in the way that we provide diverse and individually targeted healthcare as a country. This extends to the changes that he has seen in older adult care over the past 30 years. In that we are seeing patients each as an individual and there isn't a one-size-fits-all treatment plan and it is the role of practitioners to work with their patients to achieve the most successful outcome i hope that you enjoyed this episode i think it's really relevant right now and very informative i'll be providing a link to the article that professor rick bell wrote as well as a link to CSOP and their webinars online so you can find out a lot more. If you'd like to find out further information about our guests, as well as these links and reading resources, please go to our social media on Facebook and Instagram at Good Medical Podcast and on Twitter at Good Medical Pod. All that leaves me to say is thank you for listening and I'll talk to you next time.